welcome back and thank you again. I'm happily fattened by putting cheese curds in my bratwurst today. That's, that's how they served them to me at the local restaurant where we went to. They just packed the cheese curd in the bratwurst. And I feel like I'm from Wisconsin. And they deep fried it. Yes. So who knew? I, I almost went with the pasty, but I'm glad I didn't. Okay. Um, so it is, again, a privilege uh, to serve you all uh, this weekend. And, um, you know, I was a preaching pastor for 14 years, preaching week in and week out like so many pastors do. But I had a passion for equipping lay people for ministry. It was really where my heart was beating and what I was longing to do. And by God's uh, good providence, found a place where they are, you know, they asked me basically to do that full time. So I, I do a lot of counseling, but I actually do more equipping of people to minister the word of God to one another. And in many ways, that is kind of what I, I'm hoping to motivate you to do. I can't accomplish all that in, in just a few sessions this week, but I want to help you understand the importance of ministering the Word of God to one another as a church family and hopefully motivate you to, to learn more and more about how to do that. Um, I did not grow up in a Christian home, so I didn't get saved until I was 20 years old after my sophomore year in college. I uh, hadn't really been a church attender prior to that. I really didn't know anything about what church life was supposed to look like or what it meant to, to be a Christian, to be part of ministry in a local church. So um, I don't have that heritage to draw from, but I do have uh, a, a lot of men have come alongside me and women, actually, and helped me understand how to minister the Word of God to other people. And I think that, in part, is why I've, I have such a desire to see that happen. I did go to seminary. Uh, in the late 90s and in, in 2000, we moved to Vermont, New Hampshire. We lived in Vermont. Our church was in New Hampshire. We always have to explain that. Everything's kind of packed really close together uh, up there in New England. It uh, doesn't take long to get places. Um, and uh, that's where I served for 14 years. And it was really there at the end of my first year of ministry that I met a woman named Jill. This young mother of four had a a terrible history, and she had all the troubles that you would imagine would have been produced by such a terrible history. And through a mutual friend, a young lady who actually babysat her children, uh, she was invited to church. Uh, she approached me for help trying to work through this terrible past and all of its consequences. And that was really the impetus for me personally to begin the journey of being equipped to shepherd God's people. Um, I had very cursory, introductory uh, training in counseling, uh, as it were. And there was maybe some reasons for that. And I knew right away that she needed help. I had the conviction that the Word of God says to shepherd the flock of God. And here she was in front of me, a herding sheep. And so I felt a burden, a responsibility to help her, but I felt inadequate. So my hope is to help you see well, a little bit of how that burden and belief got shaped in me um, and also use her story and, and some biblical passages to help again, convince you that this is this work of helping people deal with the problems of life is what God has called us to be as his people, as his church. 
Just ministering the word of God to one another in life-changing ways. So, uh, let me ask a, a couple of questions. And, and, and by the way, I want to say this because I don't really have it in my notes anywhere. So, um, when I say counseling, I think the term counseling in American vernacular kind of has some baggage. We might hear the word counseling and we think, uh, we, we might think psychiatrist, we might think therapist, um, we might think about words uh, or phrases or, or labels that have the word disorder on the end of them. There's a lot of things that we might begin to think, just as Americans, when we hear the word counseling. When I hear the word counseling, I'm, I, I really just think about putting truth into people's minds in a life-changing way. Um, and biblically, that, the, the best term for that might be discipleship. It might actually be discipleship. Uh, packed underneath, but th- there's lots of biblical terms that I think could carry ideas that are so closely resemble what, what counseling is that we ought to use them all and maybe not get stuck on any of them. So counseling is a good word. Discipleship is a good word. I also like encourage, uh, and the Greek word for that. We'll talk a little bit about that. I like I like uh, the the Greek word for comfort, uh, parakaleo, where we get paraclete, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, right? And so you think about biblically, we probably have as rich a vocabulary to talk about what does it really mean to minister the Word of God lovingly to people to help them deal with the problems of life. I think the the scriptures have the richest vocabulary for that uh, that exists. And that if we, if we take them all in the fullness of, of what they are and what they mean and try to do things that resemble all those things in the proper context, man, that is a rich thing. And so when you hear I'm a biblical counselor, don't get stuck on the word counselor or counseling. Think biblical discipler, comforter, encourager, teacher, uh, maybe fits in there as well. Think all those things. So... That is what I'm, I'm hoping to help stir you up to believe, yes, this is something that we ought to do as Christians uh, in, in one another's lives. But that idea that the work of counsel, discipleship, comfort, encouragement, instruction, to help people really deal with the difficult uh, situations, circumstances of life, uh, that's probably not broadly the way uh, Americans or Christians think that that should be done in the church. That should be done as an overflow, as part of our lives together as Christians. In fact, how, I'll just ask these questions and not ask for a show of hands, just by way of stirring your mind to think. Like, h- how many of you perhaps would say that, in one way or another, you have heard, or or maybe even to some degree, you you think this yourself that, boy, counseling. That, that's the kind of stuff that really should be left for the experts. We start using words or phrases that end with the word disorder. Boy, that stuff is something I think people only with training uh, in helping folks should consider doing. How many of you probably, perhaps, would feel pretty unequipped if someone came to you and said, I have such and such a, a disorder, uh, my doctor has diagnosed me with 
a, a clinical depression of some kind, or um, there's other things we could throw in there, bipolar disorder, PTSD, um, all kinds of things, uh, bi borderline personality disorder. I could rattle off a bunch of things, some of which we might think we know what it is and some of them we might not. But if someone came to you and said, I, I think I have this, I think this is what I'm suffering from, how many of you would feel unequipped to even begin to have a conversation with them about it? And I think often what happens is that's what we do. We feel unequipped and we're like, whoa, don't want to get into that conversation, right? And we're awkward and we, and we sheepishly back away when someone in need is standing in, in front of us. There might even be some of you who think, man, if the church really started getting into that kind of work, there might even be legal liabilities, right? Some of you, you're more administrative among you, um, or people who work in the insurance industry or the medical industry perhaps might think that. So I, I realize as we kind of dive into this topic that it's not a simple one, um, and that some of these questions, and again, aren't you glad you get to ask me questions, which at Faith Bible Church we call Stump the Chump. So... Um, Dive into that. It's fun. It's actually one of my favorite things to do is Q&A. So, but my, my goal today, I hope, is to help convince you that this, this ministry, let's, let's just call it ministry, this ministry of the Word of God, discipling, encouraging, comforting, counseling, instructing, is really something that we should be doing in the church. Uh, my, the original version of, of some of these notes that I wrote is why counseling belongs in the church. But really, I'm just talking about this ministry of transforming people's lives by uh, learning and applying the Word of God together in the power of God, by the grace of Christ. So let me tell you a little more about that story, Jill, and her, her tragic story. Jill was the only child of a wealthy Boston banking executive. She was raised in a, a very sheltered environment in all uh, girls' private Catholic schools. And so she finishes uh, school as a high schooler and she goes off to college. And because of really a sheltered upbringing in those private schools, uh, she put herself in a very bad situation and was raped during her first year in college. Just too naive to deal with the world that was in front of her. She was gravely hurt, and to avoid that vulnerability, she decided, I am going to attach myself to the meanest, baddest dude I can find, and no one will ever touch me again. So her response to that horrific situation was to, to, to try to protect herself, but guess what she found out? The meanest, baddest, toughest dude she could find was mean and bad and tough to her. And so she suffered under his abusive treatment for quite some time. And one evening, got so angry, he beat her until she was unconscious and essentially left her for dead on a sidewalk uh, on the campus uh, where she was going to school. He had forced her to have two abortions uh, along the way as well, which you can imagine someone with a, a Catholic conscience being forced to have abortions. It was horrific, just horrific for her. A knight in shining armor found her on that sidewalk and he scooped her up and he took her to a nearby hospital where he stayed with her for 24 hours until she woke up. And 
when he found out what had happened to her, he went to this big, bad, tough dude and said, if you ever lay a hand on her again, I will kill you. That's what he told him. So he was a pretty tough dude himself. Um, um, I never got to meet him because six months after he scooped her off that sidewalk, or uh, soon after it, he scooped her off that sidewalk. They were married, but six months after the marriage, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And six months after that, he was dead. They were married just barely a year. Her hero, the, the man that, that meant everything to her at that point. Uh, well, he was gone, but there were 12 vials of sperm frozen so that she could have his children. That was how much she idolized this man. And so she didn't want his children not to have a father, so she married his best friend. They were never in love. He was, it was a marriage of convenience so that the children of her first husband would have a father. This is not a good situation, right? Her wealthy Boston banker father paid for all of the in vitro stuff, and she had miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage, I think six or seven before finally she was, she, one of the pregnancies took, and she ended up having four children, all from her first husband, none from her second. The, the grief of losing her husband, the guilt of aborting her first two pregnancies, uh, I think were driving this obsession to have as many of his children as she could, and when she started coming to our church, uh, I mean, emotionally, she was, she was messed up. She had attempted suicide twice. She was having uh, repeated panic attacks, debilitating depression, would, would stay in bed for a long time. She was reporting hallucinations, and she also believed that her second husband was plotting to kill her. So we have some paranoia in there. So this was something, Right? I'm a year out of seminary. That'd be like in a couple months, Josh. Jill walks into your office. You good to go? None of us are good to go in that situation. I, I, I can assure you. My, my seminary training, as good as it was, hadn't really discussed those issues in, in any, any detail, really. I, I'd taken the obligatory counseling course, but um, I, I didn't really know where to begin. To help her. But I was convinced that the scripture says, shepherd the flock of God. Care for God's people. And so I just began to learn and study and prepare to have biblically saturated conversations with her about her life and her thoughts and begin to, to learn, okay, what, what do we, how can I encourage, have ladies come alongside with me to help her. And I, though I wasn't prepared, I knew, I knew that what she needed most of all was the gospel of God's eternal and infinite grace. That a right relationship with God was the only thing that was really going to help her think through all the complexities of her life. And the emotions that she was experiencing as a result of it. Even the physical things she was experiencing as a result of it. Because, 
Because God has promised to rescue us. The word salvation means deliverance or rescue. And if she needed anything, it was to be rescued out of the pit that, that really was her life and all of those effects of both some of her own sin, but mostly just sin against her, right? Do you, do you really believe that even people in the worst of situations like that, we, I think we often as Christians, we say we believe that the gospel and a right relationship with God is the thing people need, need the most. And yet when it comes to complex cases, sometimes not even cases that complex, we begin to doubt that the gospel is really the thing, that a right relationship with God, the living God, a rescuing, saving, delivering God is the thing that they need the most. In the 21st century that we live, I think there's a a cultural wave, a social consciousness that says, yeah, that stuff we need to leave to the experts. And sometimes, frankly, and I've been there too, I don't have time for this, right? So that's, that's, a, that's a complicating factor. And so often what, what happens then is not that people get ministered the word of God and introduced to right relationship with God, but they get a referral to a therapist who I think can probably provide some help and maybe some direction and, and certainly means well and intends to help, but doesn't bring the hope of the gospel necessarily, the rescuing power, the life-giving power of the gospel. Christian folks here tonight, uh, I, I'm calling the church here to, to begin to hear God's exhortation to us to cast down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and the power of the gospel take our thoughts captive to obedience to Christ and really believe it. That the gospel is the thing that people need. And a right relationship with God is the thing that will rescue us from sin and and, and all of its effects. We need to be convinced of that and begin to figure out, and I realize we can't get all the way there this week even, but begin to figure out what's it going to look like if the body of Christ, you all together, begin to grow in this ability to minister the word of God to one another in a transformative way, in a life-changing way, at a heart level that, that impacts you and one another, right? That, is, that makes the church not, not just a social gathering place, but really a hospital for soul care, right? A place, a place where... People who are living their life in the flesh, as I said this morning, right, in the weakness of our humanness, where we can come together and experience the power of God to transform us. We, we don't want the church to be a place where people begin to think that's not where people get help with their problems. Right? We want the church to be known. I hope you want your church to be known. That's a place where people go to get help with serious problems.
Why don't we think that anymore? How, how have we, maybe as an evangelical church, kind of drifted from being the place where soul care took place? Uh, where and how has this social consciousness uh, been created that makes us kind of default into thinking, send them to a specialist, refer them out? I want to just share a little bit of history because once upon a time, the the work of soul care was what the church did. It, it was a ministry of, of the people of God. And going back in church history, not so far ago, to the time of the Puritans, you find that soul care was being done in the context of the church. Now, well, there, there weren't any psychologists in, in the time of the Puritans, right? They were kind of like cultures psychologists, if you will. And of course, psychology is study of the soul. They were the ones that were really doing soul care. And most of us in the evangelical world, we like to think of ourselves as the descendants of, at least the theological descendants of the Puritans. But in this way, uh, I, I fear that perhaps we're not. If you could pick up, there's a whole series of books called the Puritan Paperbacks. And so many of them are actually written on, on counseling topics. Go and read the titles. There's ones on melancholy and discontent and uh, all kinds of things. They're very useful tools, actually, for counseling even this day. During the time of the, the Puritans, though, here's the irony, is the, the people that weren't very helpful were actually the medical profession. I'm, I'm not trying to dig on the medical profession. I love my doctor. He's actually a biblical counselor. That helps. But... Um, uh, I'm not trying to dig on the medical profession, but in those days, right, we've, we've perhaps seen what doctors would do sometimes. They're bleeding people, you know, and uh, they were the ones that in, invented, it was during that time, they, they started um, doing all kinds of things, sort of Victorian age uh, doctoring during the Renaissance. Um, they, they didn't get sympathetic and compassionate care if if they exhibited symptoms that uh, were bizarre, right, they would put them in places that used to be called insane asylums. Remember those words? That's not, that doesn't sound like a friendly place to spend a weekend. Um, Bloodletting. Uh, they invented medically induced seizures at that time that later became shock therapy that actually is still broadly used today. I don't, I'll bet you'd be shocked, no pun intended, shocked to know. Uh, how many places are still practicing shock therapy even, even today? So while all those things were going on, uh, and, and some of the most hurting people of society were, were shunned or locked up, many of the reformers and the Puritans just remained committed to doing soul care for them. Bob Kellerman, uh, a, a biblical counselor in our movement, one I respect very much, uh, wrote a book called Counseling Under the Cross, how Martin Luther applied the gospel to daily life. Now, we're taking a step back in history, even before the age of what's called the Puritans, right, to uh, the, the Reformers in the 16th century. And he outlines in this book some interesting cases in chapter 70, accounts how Martin Luther befriended and counseled three difficult men. One was a man who was melancholic. That's their old word for depressed. And psychotic who, believing himself to be dead, hid in a cellar to rot. 
and refused to eat and drink. He didn't want to waste food and drink on a dead man. So he's thinking about that, which is odd, right? But there he was, melancholic, psychotic, hiding in a cellar, and Martin Luther engaged and counseled him. There was another man who thought he was a rooster, thought he had a big old red comb in his head and a long beak and would go around crowing like a rooster, right? We know where someone like that would end up today, right? They would be in a hospital. They would be in a psychiatric hospital somewhere. Another man was what he refers to as a voluntary retentive, a voluntary retentive, someone who refuses to urinate or go to the bathroom. So choosing not to go to the bathroom, Luther began to counsel him, like, why are you doing this? Come to find out he, he, would, he was able to trace his fear to a sermon the man had heard about the works, about works righteousness and controlling your body. If you want to be righteous before God, you need to learn how to control your bodily impulses, right? And he believed if he could perfectly control his body that God would accept him. And so, he started choosing to refuse to go to the bathroom. Anyway, Luther cared for these men. He counseled these men. He came alongside these men. He befriended them. And Kellerman describes how he integrated them into the relational life of the church. And he brought the gospel to bear on those questions. I mean, that man who was a voluntary retentive believed in order to be right with God... He had to completely control his body. We spent a lot of time this morning showing how that's not what—that's not the gospel, right? That we can't obtain or maintain our standing before God by anything that we do. The gospel was the solution for this man. What a joy it must have been for him to see my acceptance before God isn't dependent on my ability to completely control my bodily impulses, right? He receives the gospel. He gets incorporated in the life of the church. And Kellerman quotes a Renaissance historian, not a Christian evaluating Luther's counsel, but a historian who says this, Luther shows none of the dehumanizing amusement that often animates even learned physicians when they report certain kinds of cases. The cure is brought about not by trickery, but by friendly persuasion, by appeal to common humanity, by company. He means fellowship. The entire story is informed by a strong sense of sympathy for a patient who becomes stigmatized by society. An unsaved man's description of how Luther ministered the gospel to folks that, frankly, we would call crazy. Right? I think Luther, and then later the Puritans, they are the forefathers of what I'm a part of, this modern biblical counseling movement. But, but why is there, and there is a movement, there is really, a resurgence of belief in the evangelical church that this kind of ministry belongs here? Why is it a resurgence? Why, where, where, what happened between the Puritans and us? that has created this social consciousness that says, boy, when people have serious problems, we need to refer them out. What has happened to snip the thread of soul care in the church? The Puritans did it, but we often don't think we should. Well, 
a little bit of evangelical history, a little modern church history. Around the 20th, beginning of the 20th century, a couple of things happened, and it's, it sort of created this firestorm for undermining this work, this ministry of the Word, as our role, or the church's authority to minister the Word and provide soul care. First thing that happened was in the early 20th century, there was a shift in the way the church began to think about pastoral duties and about the nature of the church. The church began to increasingly function more like an organization, more like a business. We had the rise of Sunday school programs, which is terrific. Let's, let's do all of that that we can. But the rise of Sunday school programs in itself created an environment where, hey, let's try other programs. And before you know it, we've got all kinds of programs. Well, who's going to run the program? Well, slowly, the expectation and the practice in the modern church in the, in the 1900s, the 20th century, pastoral responsibilities and expectations began to be restructured. So the church would be led by someone who could manage the organization. And it, it wasn't a total redefinition. That, that's not it. But it was a shift. It was certainly a shift away from what the, the leaders in the church in Jerusalem said here, we need to appoint some men to take care of some of these administrative duties so that we can devote ourselves to the Word of God and to prayer. Boy, I, I, don't, I don't hear that often anymore when I, when, I give this, uh, when I give this talk to pastors. I love when I get a room full of pastors and I get to say this. <laughs> How many of you spent more time praying with your fellow elders this week than you did sitting in meetings? Talking about administration. I've never had somebody go, right here. Never never had a pastor say that. Boy, if only those that are shepherding the flock of God would be so devoted to the word of God in prayer. right? Because, not because we got rid of the programs, that's not what I'm calling us to do. But let people, other people do that. I don't care what you call them. Call them deacons. Call them administrators. Call them directors. I don't care what you call them. Let the shepherds shepherd. Right? And, but anyway, that's, just, that's one of the shifts. That's one of the shifts that happened in the evangelical church. The second thing that happened uh, in, in the 19th century was the rise of secular social sciences and, and psychotherapeutic methods of counseling. And this cultural shift that was happening in the 1900s when Freud and, and Carl Jung and Adler and Skinner and Rogers, a host of others in the field of psychology, began to redefine the nature of man and redefine the nature of man's problems. And Western culture, by and large, thinks that way about man and his problems. The way the, the secular social sciences have have taught us to think about it. And so culture as a whole, and then evangelical culture as, as sort of an overflow, begin to think about counseling issues as the role of a trained psychotherapist rather than as the duty of a pastor or someone who could provide soul care in a personal way. The problems of people were being defined as psychological problems. And the spiritual aspects weren't being considered because a lot of these men developing these modern theories were themselves either atheists or anti-God. 
You can read some of the history of that if you'd like to do some more homework. I love giving homework. Um, instead, professionals, that became the, the prevailing mindset. People with problems needed to go see a professional. And a third thing that happened was there was a shift in the, the, the nature of theological education that was also being influenced by these things. So the, the idea of, of the church becoming more of an organization to manage on the one hand and the philosophies of secular psychology that was redefining the nature of man and their problems uh, began to, to influence the way theological education was done. And so, well, we don't need to train pastors to do this anymore because now we've got psychotherapists that can do that. We need to train pastors to do this administrative stuff, this management stuff. And theological education itself began to, to take on a different flavor. The biblical counseling movement, if we want to call it that, really started in the 50s when a man named Jay Adams, who was a pivoter, when I say pivot, I mean he pivoted hard (laughs) uh, into all of these philosophies, and sometimes not as graciously as he could have, but he was a a revolutionary when it came to the negative influence that these things had had on the mindset of the church. When he took his first pastorate in the 1950s, he had the same experience I did. Someone came to him with a problem on a Sunday night after a sermon, and he had no idea how to help him because nobody had ever taught him. What do you do when someone comes to you with this horrible problem? And so he began to get to look for training, and all he could find was this psychological stuff. That was all that existed in the 50s. And so he's hearing all this secular psychology that isn't talking about the nature of man in a biblical way. It's not talking about the nature of man's problems, the way God who made us and knows us talks about those problems. It was talking about it in a, in a secular way. In the course of him trying to figure all this out, he met a man named Hobart Maurer. Hobart Maurer was a secular psychologist himself, and a former president of the American Psychological Association. So he, he wasn't a small player in the field of psychology. He was a big hitter. But Maurer was different than many psychologists who, who often, uh, there's, there's elements and, and arms of the psychological field that, is, that really relegates most of our problems to being caused by others. Right? So we, we, you're probably most familiar with just saying the victim mentality. You know, my mother made me do it. You know, my, this is my parents' fault. This is someone else's fault. Uh, fault is not mine. Maurer was a, a secular psychologist who began to see, I don't think most of people's problems are really driven by, not primarily driven by social things, but are primarily driven by moral choices that we make in life and in evaluating even the difficulties of life and began to wonder, man, maybe this work should be done by people who understand moral choices, not by secular psychologists. And at one point in an article that he wrote, he said, this is an unsaved man saying, has evangelical religion sold its birthright for a mess of psychological pottage? Kind of using the story of Esau, right? He sold his birthright to Jacob just for uh, a mandrake. And he's saying, like Esau, had the church relinquished 
her privilege and birthright of helping people with their problems and sold it to their lying little brother, the the psychological profession named Jacob, for a bowl of of stew. Well, that's that's a lot of history. Maybe you like history. Maybe you don't. I hope this has kind of helped you at least understand, yeah, you know, I kind of want you to go stomp your foot and say, yeah, soul care belongs in the church. That should not have happened. That, that's kind of the idea. And these shifts, uh, these are the shifts that I think happened. And what Jay Adams did imperfectly and sometimes gruffly, but what he did was he began to untie the knots of confusion that secular psychology had created and that some of this history had, had sort of cultivated and began to restore that thread of soul care from the Puritans back to us in this day. And it really came to fruition in 1970 when he published his, his first book, Competent to Counsel. And he wasn't talking about the, the ministerial profession. He was talking about Christians and the Christian church. We are competent to counsel one another. And that was really um, the launching of the modern biblical counseling movement. So in the time that we have left, I want to ask and illustrate uh, the answer to this question, why, why does this ministry belong here? I've given you some history of why it kind of disappeared and got cast off. Now let's go back into the scriptures and let's, let's challenge our hearts to think, like, am I right? Because I'm, I'm not right because of my analysis of history. Um, the, the only way we can actually be right about anything is if this is what the Bible says, right? So let's, let's dig back into the scripture and ask ourselves, where does the Bible call us as Christians to think about ministry of the word in this way, that we are competent to counsel if we want to use that phrase. Why does this ministry belong in this church, this ministry of discipleship, comfort, encouragement, instruction, whatever it is? Now, uh, what we're doing, again, um, well, let's, let's just do this. So I'm not going to take the time to, to talk about a definition of what biblical counseling is, I think there's one in your notes. It's really just helping people with loving, biblically saturated conversations understand life and respond to life in a God-honoring way. So Heath Lambert, I love how he says, helping people with questions, problems, and trouble find answers, solutions, and help through loving conversations. That's how I think about what I do when people come into my office. I'm just trying to help them Go to God and go to his word. And so let's, let's ask that question. Um, why, why does this ministry belong in the church? And I'm going to give you four reasons. One, the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Let's think about the Great Commission uh, and what Jesus said right before he left. Now, again, counseling, what is counseling? Counseling uh, is helping people know and worship and, and follow Christ even in the pain of life. And there's a lot of words that can be translated counseling. I've, I've mentioned uh, uh, a few, right? So do, do you have these parakaleo, nutha, teo things in your notes? I'm forgetting if those words are in there. So this is just kind of, a, kind of a stretch because, again, I'm thinking teaching, shepherding, discipling, counseling, instructing, comforting, encouraging. I think all those things. So as I go into the Great Commission here and ask, is it, are we really called to do this? Look at what Jesus says. When he gave this commission in Matthew 28, 
he, he, he doesn't say his people are just to be informed about some body of doctrine around which his kingdom will be built, but that they're to be instructed concerning the, the lifestyle of those, the living out of these principles as well. Listen, listen to the words of Jesus in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe, guard, keep all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The commandments that we are to observe or keep or guard, summed up as in the law, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice, it has more to do with how we live in relation to God and in relation to our neighbor than it has to do with the body of knowledge or doctrine. I think sometimes we think of the ministry of discipleship, and that means, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach someone through our church's doctrinal statement. I'm going to disciple them. Or maybe we think about spiritual disciplines, discipleship. We, we, I'm going to read the Bible and pray, and that's discipleship. But, but notice, when Jesus said, make disciples, right, securing their commitment and identifying with Christ, baptizing them, but then teaching them, not teaching them doctrine, that's a good thing, we should do that, but teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The emphasis in the Great Commission is helping people learn how to live a life that is faithful to the Lord and to His commands, that is, that is expressing love for God and love for our neighbor. It's a teaching them to observe the commandments. And some of those commandments are hard. They're hard to grasp. They're hard to apply. Like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew six twenty-five, where Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, etc., right? Gives a whole context. God, God loves you. you. You can't change the world. God's in control. Verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? The Gentiles seek after these things. You're not to think and live like unbelievers, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. These, he repeats it three times, right? These are the commandments of Christ. Do not be anxious. Now, we can't be seriously keeping the Great Commission. We, we can't be teaching Christ's followers to observe all that he commanded because all authority on heaven and earth is his and, and then also believe that people who experience for fear and worry and anxiety or, or panic attacks are beyond our expertise. We're actually called to teach people to observe the commandment of Christ to do not be anxious. Now, let me, let me say, I'm, I'm not going to teach you how to do that tonight. Right? So some of you are like, yeah, how do you do that? I'm sure you're thinking that. There's other seminars for that. Okay? I will say this, though. I remember the first time a woman who was experiencing panic attacks came into my office. I remember in the context of that conversation, uh, 
referencing the commands of Christ. Good. Good so far. Kind of. Right? But I use the word sin in that conversation. Bad idea. Bad idea because, one, I had not lovingly identified with her in her suffering. Let's start there. I don't think she knew fully that I cared for her, though I, though I did. But I don't think she understood that. Number two, man, that word sin, I'm, I'm off my notes here, so I'm going to step over here. That word sin, the most common word for sin in the Old and the New Testament means something very similar. And the concept is miss the mark. Miss the mark, right? That's good. If I miss the mark, let's say I'm playing darts, all right? What am I aiming at? The mark, whatever it is, right? Triple 20, bullseye, I don't care what you're aiming at. But I missed it, but I was aiming at it. That's the most common word by far that God uses to talk about sin. But it implies that when we commit sins of that nature, that we are striving to hit the mark, right? Whatever it might be. Nobody ever gets up in the morning and says, you know what? God tells me to rejoice in the Lord always, but I'm going to go for total despair today. I don't care what God says. I'm just going to just go down, 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 maybe even be suicidal by lunch. Nobody does that, right? They don't do that with anxiety. They don't do, it these, they don't do that. They're, they want to be joyful or they want to be trusting in the Lord and not be anxious, right? And they miss the mark. They just miss the mark. That word sin, this is another one of those words like counseling in our, in our American English vernacular. That word sin I think we use it sometimes, and, and it's really easy to associate it with all those other words like rebellion, disobedience, wickedness, iniquity. But you know what? Those are different words, and they mean something totally different. And I guarantee you that God never uses those kinds of words to describe anxiety or depression. The only sense in which those things are sinful are, are They're expressions of our weakness when we're trying to hit the mark of joy or trusting obedience, and and we miss it because of our human weakness. And so it should engender compassion in us, right? And, And yet the reality is there, and I don't want you to get too distracted, that the Great Commission says we need to help teach people to not be anxious because that's helping them keep the commandments that Christ has taught to us. And we need to understand at least how to help people toward that. Now, stay tuned for, for point number four. We're going to get there. It's not just your job. You don't have to be the one person who helps that person fully. Right? So don't think I'm saying that. But we need to understand something. And we, at the very least, need to understand that the Great Commission says, I need to at least be committed to this is a thing that should be happening in the life of the church that God has put us in as we're helping people. The Great Commission says, yeah, we need to be committed to that, even if we don't fully understand it today. Number two, second reason why this kind of ministry belongs in the church, it's the sufficiency of Scripture. What does the Bible say about its, its own power and sufficiency 
to be the tool that God and his servants can use in a life-transforming way. Second Peter 1 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And by his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of lust. Again, do we, do we really believe it? We, we read it, and we often can quote it, but do we really believe it, that we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, that His Word can enable us to become partakers of the divine nature, that that's where the power for life and, and godliness comes from, is through His Word and lived out in right relationship with Him, are we really convinced that that's the case? Christians do not escape the corruption of this world and partake of the divine nature by the promises, power, and philosophies of secular therapy. They don't. Again, that doesn't mean that can't be helpful at some level and in some ways, in some situations. It's simply to say that those, the secular versions of that particularly are just the traditions of men at best and often vain imaginations and empty philosophy at worst. The Word of God is breathed out by Him. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This, this truth of the sufficiency of God's word requires us to think about this ministry of soul care as a thing that belongs here. Not the words of the therapist, but the words of God. I, I have a quote in there in the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're going to talk about that tomorrow night, so I'm going to, I'm going to skip that for the sake of time tonight. But look at the words of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's just another place where God describes this sufficiency of his word. And I can tell you so many people who come into my office hurting and confused into our counseling center at our church, this is what they need. They need their soul revived. Right? They need their, their simple minds informed by the glory of the truth of God's word. They need their despairing heart to be transformed into a rejoicing heart. And that's what God's word can do. They need their, their confusion enlightened by his pure commandments. Right? It's a, it's a rich description of the sufficiency of God's word. And again, right when, when the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. We can't say I believe in the sufficiency of God's word unless they're depressed. Then I need to refer them to a specialist. No, it's the, it's the word of God that is sufficient to help a person's heart rejoice. And again, I'm, I'm not going to do a seminar on how to help people who are depressed today, right? What I'm trying to do is, is, is get you to see this is something we need to think carefully about, more deeply about, 
and maybe be equipped to do because it's something God has called us to be and do, right? Because his word is sufficient. I just saw it. The Great Commission demands it. I just saw it. And number three, the role of a pastor, shepherd, mandates the same thing, right? First Peter 5, this was the thing I was convinced of. I'm a pastor. God's called me to shepherd the flock of God, to care for them, to feed them, to lead them, to guide them. First Peter 5 says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, right? And when you do, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory. There's, there's some promise of reward. That's great. I like rewards, uh, but that shouldn't be our primary motivation. And yet, there's this certain and obvious implication in the text that if we don't shepherd the flock of God, we will not receive that crown of glory. That's not good. And so this feeding, guarding, nurturing, protecting, leading, guiding, caring, those are all things that pastors are called to do. And they can't all be sufficiently done from a pulpit. Right? Sometimes those questions and problems and pain that, that we experience are things that really can only be addressed on a very personal level, right? And I, I can't really do that from a pulpit, although I, I tried to do a little bit of it today, uh, I hope you caught that. But you also see the Apostle Paul in numerous places in Scripture exercising not just a pulpit ministry, but a very personal and private ministry. In Acts twenty twenty, it says he was teaching publicly and from house to house. He believed in private ministry of the word. Later, when he commends the Ephesian elders in in, uh, chapter 20 to the work of caring for the church, he said, I did not cease night or day to admonish each one with tears. Talking about admonishing people with the word of God on an individual level. And he commended them all to that word of his grace that edifies and enriches and sanctifies. So, very personal ministry. L- listen to how Paul describes his personal shepherding ministry to the church in Thessalonica in chapter 2, verse 7 and following. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you. There it is again, very personal ministry. And we encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Verse 13, For this reason we also constantly refer you to outside agencies for help with your spiritual problems. It sounds awful, doesn't it? It sounds awful. There's no way that Paul, that the, the consummate shepherd, would ever say that after bleeding love for them the way he does in that text. And we, we need to help and encourage our own shepherds to be those kinds of men. And I believe women shepherd and care for one another as well in a very similar way. That's, that's the calling of what shepherds are to be. And so develop whatever it looks like in in your own church philosophy and in your own church structure and atmosphere where those who are shepherding the flock of God can do that. Now, I think shepherds in the church take the lead in these things and they, uh, they set the example in these things. They also are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
Because frankly, there's, there's no way. Even a team of shepherds like what you have are going to be able to do all the encouraging, all the comforting, all the instructing, counseling, discipling that needs to get done. And that's the fourth reason why this is really a ministry that belongs in the church. This is God's design for the church. The biblical counseling movement began when Adams published that book, Competent to Counsel. And I mentioned, uh, I don't think I mentioned earlier that that phrase, competent to counsel, came out of Romans 15, verse 14, that says, Paul is writing, now he's not writing to the elders or the deacons in the church in Rome. He's writing to everyone. And he says in Romans 15, 14, concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Adams translated that phrase, able to admonish, competent to counsel. Very, very legitimate translation of that phrase, actually in the, in the scope of, of the original language there. Competent to counsel. You have the ability to speak the word of God into someone else's mind lovingly. That's the meaning of that word, admonish or counsel. Nutheteo. He called it nuthetic counseling. I don't think that helped anybody. But, uh, but that's what that word means. It means to lovingly speak the truth into someone else's mind to help them, to transform them. And he said, Christians who are full of goodness and filled with knowledge have the ability to lovingly speak truth into the hearts and minds of others. And he was calling on the whole church to do so. Notice, that's the bigger picture, right? The whole church had those prerequisites. And I think God has called every church to think this way. This is what he describes in Ephesians 4. It's, it's actually not a call for pastors and teachers to do all the counseling. It's a call, Ephesians 4.11, for pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And it's not just the physical needs or material service he's talking about, because he says this service to the body of Christ will help us attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This ministry that pastors and teachers are called to equip you for is, is to help you be better at leading people to the knowledge of God, to help you minister the word in a maturing way that will help others, pe others grow and, and mature. And he describes what it looks like when we're doing it well. When verse 15, we're speaking the truth in love, we grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, that causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What a beautiful picture. The entire body, each individual part in the body, encouraging one another so that we all grow more. This is God's design for the church. It's what he's called us all to be. Not just your pastors. They take the lead in it. They set the example. And they equip you to do it too. That, that's kind of the aim. Kind of the goal. And if our churches, just broadly speaking, were lovingly and effectively fitting and holding together everyone in this way, oh, what, 
what amazing stuff God would be doing in our hearts, not necessarily building an edifice or bringing in thousands of people, although I'll tell you, there's no ministry at Faith Bible Church that brings more people through the doors than the biblical counseling ministry. The sick need a physician. And they come looking for one. And it's an amazing ministry to be able to, to see God transform people like that. I don't have to go out on the street and find someone and try to convince them to listen to the gospel. People walk into my office and say, I, I need the gospel. Right? It's, a, it's a marvelous ministry uh, and it can be a great outreach. So there's four reasons. And I, and I hope, again, I've probably stirred you to think, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff I don't understand now, and maybe I need to get some more equipping in that. But I hope what I've convinced you of is that, yes, you know what? This is a kind of, of personal ministry of the Word that we need to figure out how to do better with one another. And I am going to help you do some of that. Maybe not as specific as anxiety or specific as depression, but in general, what does it look like? What does it mean how does God cause us to grow spiritually and how can I be used by him in another person's life to encourage them to grow spiritually? What does that really look like? We're going we're gonna to talk about that more. Um, I believe that God wants to do that and I've seen God help me go from, oh my goodness, how do I help Jill? To seeing Jill's life change. And that's just one story of, of many that I could tell. Dozens and dozens, actually. Just one. And it's not because I'm particularly bright. Uh, it's certainly not because I'm the most caring guy in the world. Um, but it's because God's word is powerful. And God is a rescuing God. And when we lovingly bring this powerful word to bear in people's lives, he does amazing things. I was telling Josh today as we were walking around, the most amazing transformations I've seen uh, aren't the ones where I think I've done the best job teaching someone. It's the ones where people take a little bit of what I've said and they combine it with their own saturation with the Word of God and God does something. And it almost feels like I'm just like along for the ride here. Guy comes into my office, you're not going to believe what God did for me this week. You know, I'm like, that's so awesome, right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm just, I'm watching. I'm watching God do great things. And that's what happens when we, when we really are just people that God uses to stir up folks toward that end. Because we're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. We're able to do it by God's grace. So I, I hope I've encouraged you to think that way. Let me pray. We're going to take a short break. I'm going to pray. And uh, I hope you got lots of questions. God, thank you. Thank you for uh, what you... I hope, have, have challenged our hearts to be reminded of, really, and help us to have a willingness to say, what does this mean for me? What, what maybe does it mean for the life of our church as we're just growing and, and wanting to deepen our roots and, and, and our ability to minister your word to one another? Uh, God challenged us to, to think carefully about that. We want to fulfill the Great Commission, and, and we want to embrace and live out the implications of the sufficiency of your your word, and we want to be equipped for this amazing ministry of your sufficient word to the hearts and lives of others and, and experience the blessing that comes from that, even that reward, uh, God. So help us, uh, we're challenged in the, over the next few days to think about uh, what does spiritual growth look like and how does spiritual growth happen. Um, help us, uh, again, to be 
committed to pursuing it first in our own lives and hearts and then uh, as, as loving spiritual friends uh, with each other. Uh, we ask your blessing on the rest of our time tonight uh, in your name. brought in snacks for us, treats for us. It's always welcome. And uh, so, you know, not just because we're Baptists. Uh, we have a few questions that came in. Thank you, by the way, for those, those of you who have been um, sharing, willing to share those things that maybe came up as you listened to Brian. And so I'm going to start with one here. It's a little bit longer, so we'll try to, we'll try to uh, I'll try to communicate. Okay. So the theory is relevant. Assuming those individuals who need counsel come to church or are part of the flock, the theory of you know, trying to provide that um, as a community of believers. How do we reach the people who have never been to church? Uh, we need professional counselors that counsel on biblical principles and can show them that they need God in a church body once they even know it exists. There are professional Christian counselors that counsel on those principles, so I think we need both the church counselors uh, both the church and counselors, professional counselors, that is, need to work together. What do you think? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, the, the, the silly answer would be one of the jokes we have in our counseling center. How many biblical counselors does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but it has to really want to change. That's good. Good stuff, huh? Thank you. I'll be here all week. Um, so... How do you help people that don't even know that, that the answer is the gospel? Well, the, the answer for them is evangelism, right? But I think with folks like that, evangelism takes a different form. And the, the question is actually describing it really well, like convincing them that that's their need is, is Christ and imputed righteousness and the power to, to live right. Or perhaps helping them see the realities that the Bible describes that for those who who turn away from God and his wisdom and his ways, they, they experience all these consequences, right, that, that they're suffering under and say, but God doesn't want you to suffer from the consequences of your sin. He wants you to give your life and heart to him. And so you, you are, in essence, counseling them, but you're, you're not necessarily able to help them live out God's commands. So that becomes a different thing. Right? So I can't really help an unbeliever love God and love his neighbor. I can't help an unbeliever worship or live a life of worship and obedience. Romans 8 says they don't submit themselves to the law of God, nor are they able to do so. Right? So I would be spinning my wheels to try to get them to live obediently. But I am going to evangelize them. I'm also going to show them the wisdom of God's word. I'm going to show them uh, what God's word says about their problems and uh, lead them. So I, I'll give you an example. I mentioned the fellow that I led to Christ in 2004 that's discipling my son. And I mentioned they came to me at the church on a Sunday morning and said, we're having relational problems and, and we need help with conflict resolution. That was their thing. They were fighting a lot. They were living together, unmarried, fighting a lot. Um, and I'm like, hey, I would love to sit down with you and share what God's word has to say about living faithful lives. And so they came in. And I shared the gospel with them very clearly, succinctly, but clearly. And, 
and then said, now let's talk a little bit about your conflict. What does that look like? And I showed them that God's word has wisdom for how to handle anger and conflict. And I actually sent them home with homework, uh, gospel track type homework on the one hand, and studying and thinking about life and their problems and their conflicts from James chapter 4. So I got them reading the Bible and reading the gospel. And they came back the next week, and I was like, how'd it go this week? Yeah, we still fight a lot. Why? You know, I'm like, yeah, I know, because you're unbelievers, and you're really selfish. Um, and people do what they do because they want, they want, and you just want what you want. And that's how you live, because you're an unbeliever, and you don't have a choice. Um, and so I described that. I actually described it to them. Not, not, in those silly, not in that silly way, but I described that spiritual reality. Yes, you're going to continue to fight because you need spiritual life. You need an entirely different reason for living. And the reason you need to live is to love God and to love your neighbor and not love your own desires. But you can't do that right now because you need life in Christ. So let me tell you the gospel again. And I preach the gospel to him again. And... Um, and I gave them another homework assignment, right? And this week, the homework assignment is, what does God want? How does God want me to live? And I had them read First Thessalonians chapter 4, you know. Um, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. <laughs> Might as well broach the subject, <laughs> right? And so, uh, same thing happened week three. They came back and... Um, and we began to talk about it. And at some point in that third session with them, it was in the third session, not the second, it, uh, I think the, the gal got converted. Like she slammed her hands on the desk and was like, that's it. I'm moving out. You know, he starts crying. It, it got ugly. Um, and it, I mean, it was, it was quite a dramatic thing. And eventually he got saved too, about three weeks after that. And um, so I'm just showing them God's word has wisdom for your world and your life and your problems if you want to live for him. And you need the spiritual power to do that. The gospel, submitting your life to Christ, is what gives that power. So it, it's, it's kind of a council, council uh, evangelism combo, right? Gospel, gospel council combo is what I do in those situations. And Sometimes people reject it, and they don't come back, and, and I have to sometimes remind myself and, and our counselors, not everybody who needs help wants help, and not everybody who wants help wants biblical help. And so sometimes the best case scenario for them is to send them to a therapist of some kind and get some help with their anger, take an anger management class. I, mean, I, I like less angry people in the world. That's... That's a good thing. I drive on the roads too. Um, and so that might be the best solution for them. A Christian counselor might do something very similar, share the gospel, although that's, that's, uh, there's a real spectrum on how even Christian counselors understand the importance of that. So. Thank you, Adam, if you had anything to add, Josh. But kind of building on that, a similar question about the difference maybe contrasting a biblical counselor and other professional, quote-unquote, professional help, this time more in the medical realm. Um, I think probably getting at the, the question of real, you know, physiological or biological issues. When does biblical soul care pause and medical intervention uh, be considered to address possible physical 
Yeah, that, that's a topic that I think um, has been a sore spot maybe in the biblical counseling movement as a whole just over the last however many years it's been. Um, but I do think that the current um, thinking on that is, is this. Um, well, let me explain how, what we do. If someone comes into our counseling center and they fill out our intake form and they're experiencing symptoms of anxiety or depression or things of that nature, um, and they have not had a physical in the last 12 months, the first homework assignment we give them is go to your doctor, get a full physical with complete blood work, the whole workup, and let's make sure that the symptoms you're experiencing do not have any identifiable organic cause. That's the first thing we would do. So let's rule that out. If your thyroid is all messed up or um, there's a bunch of things and that I, they're not coming to my mind, but you, maybe there's some medical professionals that can, can remind us. There are certain physical conditions, medical conditions, that cause the symptoms of, of depression or anxiety. All the biblical counseling in the world isn't going to make those symptoms go away because it is rooted in a physical problem, bad hormones or thyroid or whatever. So that's the first thing we would do. Now, if they come back from their doctor a few weeks later and say, yeah, I did that, there's nothing going on there. Okay, well, we don't know at that point. I don't know, they don't know, their doctor apparently doesn't know either if their problem is rooted in that. So let's just start talking about the heart issues. Let's start talking about your thinking and your life and your circumstances and your responses to those things, maybe some of the other habits you have in life, like sleep habits, etc. So we're going to start talking about those things because the body and the soul are, are interrelated. But I'm not going to assume it's physical or not physical. We're just going to start talking about all those dynamics, but focus in on the heart issues. Kind of often the question is, well, what about, can I take medication? <laughs> Should I take medication? And honestly, there's a lot of what I call medication guilt. People who just feel like I shouldn't have to take this. I'm, I'm a Christian. And I think that medication guilt in almost every case is wrong. Meaning, uh, if I pull my shoulder muscle tomorrow morning beating Josh in golf, it's a nice hypothetical. Just, yeah, hypothetical. Um, if, I, if I hurt my shoulder tomorrow, hitting it way past Josh on the first hole, um, I'm going to take medication to feel better, right? I'm going to take some Tylenol or some anti-inflammatories, I don't know, whatever else I can find in their medicine cabinet. And, um, and that's okay, right? So if someone takes medications to feel better, I'm okay with that. And I think every Christian should be okay with that. And so that's how we teach it. I think that's how the biblical counseling movement as a whole is trending, to say it that way. Though you'll occasionally find people, I think, who don't talk about medications in in that way where it's liber a liberty issue. People can take them or not take them, whatever. In my experience, I've been doing this 22 years, um, it doesn't make a difference. If, if I'm counseling someone and they are taking medications for anxiety or depression or they're not taking them, it does not make a difference what I do. I'm going to counsel them on the heart issues and the thinking and their life circumstances and help them think through that. And if in the end they say, wow, I'm feeling so much better, I think I'm going to stop taking my medication, I would go, no, 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 no. 
Go talk to your doctor. I don't want to know anything about that. Go talk to your doctor. I don't give medical advice, so you need to go talk to your doctor because just stopping your medication is usually a bad idea. And so I'm pretty careful on just helping people think through that. And um, is the medication correcting an actual physical dysfunction in their body? We don't know, actually. And if doctors are honest, they'll tell you the same thing. Take these. We know what they do, but we're not really sure what it, uh, why it helps some people and it doesn't help others. And that's true with a lot of medications. And so maybe, maybe that helps. Uh, if you want a really good treatment of sort of the history of that um, and a balanced way of thinking about it, if you go to our church's website, fbchurch.org, and just put in the search bar, is there a pill for that? That is our physician, who's also my physician, actually, but our church is, he's a physician, and he's also a biblical counselor. He has a great seminar. It's available free on our website. Is there a pill for that? Um, Dr. Dan Dean, and he gives you a lot more details on some of those things. That's great. I appreciate that, and I think it's really important, honestly, as you you talk through that, that for the biblical counseling movement as a whole, for people to hear the balance, right, to hear that there's a category there's an allowance or an understanding that, well, yeah, and of course there's a biblical theological reason because sin does affect all of our being and we are dealing with the effects of sin. We, of course, expect to have physical problems as well. And so to, to, to hear that there is a category for medication to correct and address some of those things, I think is really important because, you know, some of the, some of the accusations lobbied by opponents at the biblical counseling movement is that, well, you quacks, you, you spiritual quacks are just going to say that every problem is a spiritual problem and requires a, a spiritual answer, a biblical answer. And then you, you hear of the most extreme examples, of course, like, uh, you know, someone who stopped taking their insulin because they're diabetic and then have severe reactions and almost lose their life. You know, and of course, that's not what biblical counseling is advocating for. No. So that's important. Not at all. Um, okay, maybe we've got time for one more. So, yeah, I kind of prompted you with this one a little bit, Brian, but um, this, dips, this question dips into a, a bigger discussion of how we deal with uh, instances of demons and exorcisms in the Gospels in particular. Um, so I'll just read it as it's written, and you can unravel it as you hear it, okay? Yep. The Gospels and Acts have examples of desperate people needing demons exercised in order to be healed. Yet the epistles do not propose exorcisms, but the gospel seem curative. Sorry, but the gospel, so this is the, the counter in the epistles, right? The gospel seems curative and sufficient. Is that what you would see in scripture? Yes. Let's close in prayer. No. I, I, the way that's worded, yes, I would agree. I if you, if you look carefully at exorcisms when Jesus and the apostles are doing those, the words associated with casting out demons is the word healing. And um, the healing gifts in the scripture were sign gifts. They were signs to confirm the authority of the apostles and their message, aff- affirm the messianic uh, person of Christ. And, uh, and so... Those were healing gifts, and I don't think they're gifts that we can exercise in the same way that Christ and the apostles give. And the questioner, I think, is noting, yeah, the epistles don't give us any instructions on how to do that. 
So if that were going to be an ongoing ministry of the church, you would have expected there to be at least some instruction about how to do it. But it's silent. Instead, what you see is people just preaching the gospel and people being delivered from spiritual darkness and oppression and probably possession through the power of the gospel. Um, My own personal experience of just a couple of people that I've known who've said, at least to me, that they were demon-possessed, that's how they were delivered, was through the preaching of the gospel. And they repented and put their faith in Christ and, and the demons left them. Um, the thing about demon possession during Christ and the apostles is when someone was possessed by a demon, everyone knew it. Like, uh, you know, they would say, my son has a demon. He often casts him into the fire and, and you know, does these things. It seemed like everyone around actually knew what the condition was. And I've experienced things and seen things in, in uh, life and ministry of people that I'm, you know, I scratch my head and I go, oh, that looks like a demon possession. That, that's scary, like super scary. But I didn't have that same kind of definitive certainty that that was their problem, nor did I have any instructions. And, of course, I'm also thinking, yeah, I don't want to be that eighth son of Sceva and, uh, you know, end up running out of this place naked. So I'm just going to preach the gospel to them, you know. Jesus, I know, but Brian, I don't know him. So, um, so, um, and that's what I've done. I've just preached the gospel to them. I personally haven't seen someone who's been in that scary condition who's put their faith in Christ, but I know people who have come to faith in Christ who were demon-possessed, and that was how God delivered them, was just through the preaching of the gospel. So I do think that's how we would do it in this age. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, With that, let's be dismissed for the evening. Uh, We will come back tomorrow at 6.30 for more. Okay. I just want to say as well, yes, parents, please retrieve your children. I'm sure the the leaders in those classes will be ready to hand them off. Um, Also, if you have a question that we didn't have time to get to, we really don't have any time. Uh, If you have a question you still want to ask, please approach Brian. I'm sure he'd be glad to to take that up with you one-on-one. You're dismissed. Thank you.